Welcome back to Financial Freedom 101. As always, I'm your host Robert, and this is episode 20. Over the last several weeks, we have been moving the focus of the podcast more towards the property investment sector, as this is our preferred pathway to financial freedom, and today's episode is no different. Today's episode is all about some of the common misconceptions facing new property investors, specifically international property investors. I would like to highlight that this is not a repeat of Episode 8, Barriers and Misconceptions of Investing, but more of a continuation of it, focusing primarily on property investing. When it pertains to becoming financially free, there are a number of ways this can be done, but the most common method wealthy individuals use is investing. We actually discussed several options you can use to invest back in Episode 7, And while I will encourage you to go back and listen to it again, we will highlight some of the reasons as to why investing is a key aspect to becoming financially free. The main reason for this is because when you invest, you are having your money work for you instead of you working for your money. If you have had extra cash sitting around in the bank, you are actually losing money. Historically, inflation has averaged around 3 to 3.5% worldwide over the last 20 years. However, since 2008, bank interest rates have typically been as low as 0.25 to 0.5%, with some countries having even implemented negative interest rates for a while. What that means is you are actually paying the bank to store your money. What all this boils down to is Any money that has been left sitting in the bank has actually lost approximately 3% or more of its value each year. What's worse, over the past two years, inflation has risen to close to 5% worldwide, while interest rates have remained unchanged, meaning your money has lost even more value just sitting in the bank. Now, compare this to those who have been investing in the stock market. On average, stock markets, like the Dow Jones, have averaged around 10% returns each year, meaning your money is growing faster than inflation with little effort on your part. So why is property investing our preferred pathway to financial freedom over regular stock, bond, or mutual fund slash unit trust investing? Well, that's simple. Property investing not only gives us the capital appreciation like stocks, but it also provides us with a monthly cash flow. As we discussed this on episode 7, I won't go into detail here, but I will say cash flow is king. Property prices in the UK have averaged 3 to 4% appreciation per year, and while that is good, this is nothing compared to the cash flow ROI property can create. Looking at our properties, our cash flow is providing us approximately 15% ROI per property per year. Plus, our properties have gone up in value since we have purchased them. What's even better? Unlike stocks, we are actually using other people's money, in our case, the banks, to pay for 75% of a cash-producing asset. You can't really do that with stocks. As I said at the beginning, this episode is all about the common misconceptions held by individuals who are either thinking of starting out with property investing or are new to it. People are drawn to property investing because of the type of returns property can give, but they hold a lot of preconceived misconceptions when starting out. The first, and probably the 
biggest misconception of all is that it's all about capital appreciation. While capital appreciation is good, as I mentioned above, cash flow is king. The reason for this is because there is no guarantee that your property will increase in value or that you will be able to make money when selling it. Back in 2006 and 2007, people saw the property market booming. House prices shot up over 45% from 2003 to 2006, and people wanted to jump on the property bandwagon to make money. Unfortunately, we all know what happened in 2008. The bubble burst, and people saw their property values plummet by 50% or more. For places like London, it took over five years for property to regain its value, with some areas around the world still having never fully recovered for one reason or another. Essentially, individuals were left paying for mortgages that were worth more than the houses they were actually living in cost, and those that had to sell sold for huge losses. However, those that bought for cash flow didn't worry and were still making money. The main reason people think about capital appreciation first is actually twofold. Firstly, individuals use their experiences when formulating their preconceived notions of property investing. People have been told that owning your own home is one of the best investments you will ever make as the value of your home will always go up. You hear all the time about people being able to buy bigger and better houses after selling their property. While this is true in a lot of cases, it actually goes into the second reason why buying for capital appreciation is the most common misconception. When people sell their homes, all they normally talk about is how much money they sold it for compared to when they purchase it. All they see is that large number at the end of the sale. While they may have sold the house for more than what they bought it for, it doesn't take into account all the expenses that have been incurred while owning the property. How much have you paid for in mortgage interest? How much have you spent on maintenance and upgrades? How much have you spent on insurance or even paid in taxes over the years? All of this should be calculated into the overall cost of the property to really see how much you have made in capital appreciation. Take Singapore, for example. Many people think investing in Singapore is great because they can make upwards of 800000 to a million Singapore dollars when selling private property after just five, maybe 10 years. They see this figure and that is all they think about but they failed to take into account how much money it's costing them on a monthly basis. On average, people are paying an additional two to $4,000 out of pocket each month just to cover their required expenses. This is not including routine or emergency maintenance. Once you take this into account and look at the annualized gains, you are only making maybe one to 2% ROI per year. Don't get me wrong, some people are fine with that, and they enjoy that lump sum return at the end. After all, who wouldn't like $100,000 landing in their bank account? If that is what you are interested in, then it makes perfect sense for you. The next commonly held misconception is that you need to invest in major cities like London, New York, Sydney, etc., the main reason people focus on these major metropolitan hubs is because that is where the money is. That is where the people are. To top this off, if you are an international investor, most of the big international development firms also target you to sell these quote-unquote unbeatable investment properties in these areas. In Singapore, 
the number of firms that are advertising investment opportunities in London is almost uncountable. People look at these major metropolitan areas and ignore other locations because they think this is where they will make the most money. However, there are deals to be found everywhere. If we look at the UK, for example, over the last two or three years, London has seen a growth in property prices. And while the actual dollar amount may seem large, it has only averaged 2 to 3% year on year. While small towns like Burnley, a small commuter town between Manchester and Leeds, has averaged 8 to 9% during the same period. What's more is, Burnley is also less susceptible to market fluctuation than London is. As a market hub, crashes affect the major metropolitan centers a lot more than the smaller commuter towns. In 2008-2009, London experienced a decrease in property valuation of almost 26%, while places like Burnley saw a 1.8% decrease, according to reports from Globetrex. In the last two years, places like London have also seen mass exodus of tenants as people have been looking for bigger accommodations to weather COVID lockdown measures. While there will always be rental demands in these metropolitan areas, rental demands in other areas are just as big, if not bigger. Here's a little tip as well. Investing in these small commuter towns also helps you to mitigate the risks involved with property investing. Property prices in towns like Burnley are a fraction of what they are in London, not to mention the cost of maintaining them is less too. This means you are able to buy four, five, or more properties for the same price as one property in London. If you have nobody renting your property in London, all the expenses that you incur must be paid out of pocket. While if you have a property in Burnley that is vacant, you can use the income from the other properties to cover your expenses while still bringing in monthly cash flow. How are you going to beat that? The next major misconception and common pitfall for new investors is they look for property that they want to live in. In fact, this is also a reason a lot of people see major metropolitan areas as being key investment markets. London, Sydney, and New York are big tourist destinations. They have some of the best schools in the world and may even be some place that you want to move to one day. They look for property that are already done up to nice standards with layouts and in locations that they like. Even if they do buy a rundown property to renovate, they renovate in a style that they like. We have purchased a number of properties, and when I show the properties to friends and family, I get the same response. Why are you buying that place? I would never want to live there. My response to them is always the same. It's an investment property. It's not my personal residence. When buying property, you need to look at it through the eyes of a renter and take into consideration who your tenants will be. I have seen investors renovate houses of multiple occupation that were geared towards students as if they were going to move into this property themselves. They put in high-quality appliances, top-of-the-line expensive furniture, vases, statues, and more. And while it may sound bad, the quality of renovations you do should be reflective of the tenant that you are looking for. Houses meant for students or social housing are normally done up to a lower standard than those meant to house professionals or families. Additionally, those properties that are being sold as a flip 
are usually done up to yet another higher standard. Unfortunately, not everybody will treat a rental home as their own, and some will even purposefully damage your property. While you may think it's renovating a property to the standards of which you would live in, you are not buying the property for yourself. You are buying the property to rent out, and not everybody has the same taste or will even care for the place like you would. The last misconception we'll discuss on this podcast is a misconception that you can trust everything your sourcing agent tells you. For international property investors, sourcing agents are key power team members as they provide you with a number of valuable services, one of which is finding and sourcing good investment properties. As a common practice, most sourcing agents will create a deal packet for properties and send them out to the clients, giving them information on the property, the surrounding areas, and even basic numbers needed to run the calculations, such as sold comparables, rent comparables, and renovation costs. This is great information to help you make a decision about whether or not the property is a good investment. Unfortunately, however, for most people starting out in property investing, they may be unsure of how to do proper due diligence and evaluate potential investment properties, so they take all of the information provided to them at face value. The problem with this is it's your money at risk not the sourcing agents. There are also a lot of sourcing agents out there that are just interested in taking your money and not looking for repeat customers. Even if you have a great sourcing agent, the issue is the sourcing agent is not you. They are not taking into account your risk appetite or accounting for things that you think are important. Again, this is not saying that you should not use the information as a reference, but that you should do your own due diligence on any information received. We are in the process of purchasing a buy-to-let property in the UK and have an awesome sourcing agent helping us. While I will ask him for recommendations and will certainly use him for another purchase, I will do my own due diligence on everything he sends me. For instance, he told us that we were buying the property for almost 20000 below market value as you could not find a three-bed buy-to-let in the area for less than £150,000. He was telling us rental demand in the area was between six pounds and £700 per month as well. I'm a bit more conservative, and based on my research, I value the property closer to 140000 with rent between £625 to £650 per month. In fact, the home buyer survey I had done on the property actually valued the property at around 143,000 and noted an average rent of 650 per month. Some may think that he was lying to us about the values he gave us, but the information he gave us was legitimate, but was based on areas a little closer to the main town center. The property is still a great deal, but had I used his figures rather than my own, I would have been disappointed as the ROI I would experience on the property would be a lot lower than what I had calculated. Again, I'm not saying that the information you receive from your sourcing agent should be disregarded, but instead that you should take the information only as a reference point and do your own due diligence on the property itself. After all, it's your money that is at risk. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have a better understanding of some of the more common property investing misconceptions. If you are just starting out in property investing and would like to know more about it, 
Visit our website and download our free Five Steps to Achieve Financial Freedom in the UK Property Market ebook or send us a message and we'll get back to you. Getting started with investing is never easy, but the more misconceptions you can dispel before starting will help to increase your chances of success. I would like to thank you again for listening to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Until next time, have a great week ahead. 